Hey there. Okay, this was supposed to be the final episode of the series, but surprise, it is not. We have just added a seventh episode, and that will be out in a couple of weeks. So listen out for that. Also, before we start, just a heads up that this episode again includes some graphic descriptions of human remains. All right, here we go. A little over a year ago, I went to visit Maurice Bishop's old high school. Presentation Brothers College is one of the most prestigious schools in Grenada. The campus is just a few simple yellow buildings built into the side of a hill. But the view is really special. It overlooks downtown St. George's, and in the distance, there is the ocean. It's an all-boys school with a few hundred students. And according to the school's principal, Dominic Jeremiah, this is a place that is all about traditions. They have uniforms. There are strict rules about even what color socks they can wear. They have the school's motto, in Latin, embroidered on their shirts. All right, and you remember what it means? Yes, sir. I tell him. Virtue and knowledge. Virtue and knowledge. They have prefects and head boys and houses that compete against each other in sports. Just imagine Hogwarts, but with 85-degree weather and way more black people. Gentlemen, how are you doing? Tell us which class is this, please. This is Form 4 Physics. Form 4 Physics. Nice to meet you all. (laughs) What's the agency that they work for? Washington Post. Ah, the Washington Post. That's good. Walking around with Principal Jeremiah and seeing all these boys in their uniforms, I could imagine Maurice Bishop as a teenager here in the 1960s. Head of the student council, editor of the newspaper, arguing with other members of the debate team about why the West Indies cricket team is superior to the English cricket team, and dreaming up a future for the Grenadian people, a future that would end, for him, less than a mile away. When you stand in the garden at the back of the school, you can see the fort in the distance where Bishop was executed. I came to Presentation Brothers College because I heard about something a group of fourth-year students did back in 1999, a project they launched. And for them, it wasn't just an assignment. It was an opportunity to help Grenadian society. So our project, I'm going to try to be succinct about it, was all around finding the truth behind the missing bodies. And the purpose of that was to try to bring peace to the families. Andre Brzezinski is 39 now. Back in 1999, he was 15. And he was one of the lead students on this project to find Maurice Bishop's body. So was Valentino Sani. We genuinely believe that that this period of history, if you if you unpack it, you know, could could produce some sort of nation healing. Genuinely. Andre and Valentino were both born right around the end of the revolution. Growing up, they noticed that their families didn't talk about it much. But it seemed like people around them were still hurting over what happened. So Andre and Valentino and some of their classmates, 
they decided to do something about it. They would spend a year working on this project. Their goal was to research old accounts of what happened and then to track down new sources who might have had information that hadn't yet been shared about what happened to the bodies after the executions. I don't think we set out to say we're going to actually have body bags unearthed. But if we ask the right questions, talk to the right people, we can probably paint a little bit of a picture of what happened and where things might have gone. As someone who has spent the last couple of years trying to do essentially the exact same thing, I have to admit that I was really impressed by what these guys did when they were just teenagers. They interviewed family members of the victims. They talked to members of the Grenada 17, a lot of the same people that you've heard in this podcast. They worked out a timeline of where the bodies went and when. They actually obtained a copy of the forensic report from the anatomy professor, Robert Jordan, and they brought attention to what it said. This probably won't come as a big shock. The boys did not ultimately find the bodies. But they did find someone who was at the exhumation at Calavini. Someone who played a role in documenting what happened that day. It was a former Jamaican soldier. And he said that in that pit, he saw the body of Maurice Bishop. From The Washington Post, I'm Martine Powers, and this is The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Episode 6. The soldier who the high school boys found was named Earl Brown. A Jamaican who was there, I believe, as part of like the Caribbean Peace Treaty, like the International Force. Like Sergeant Colin Brathwaite from Barbados, who you heard from in Episode 3, what we understood was that Earl Brown was also sent over to Grenada in the aftermath of the invasion. But his unit was working directly with the Americans. The boys were able to track down Earl Brown in Jamaica with the help of their principal. When they got a hold of him, he agreed to an interview. And what he told them was that he was with the group of American soldiers who recovered the remains of Calavini. He saw the remains before they were placed into body bags and removed. And what he told the boys, including Valentino, who you heard earlier, was that those bodies were... Oh, they were identifiable. When the bodies, when the U.S. came, they were able to identify, they were able to identify the bodies. And not only could they identify the prime minister, but also one of his cabinet members, Jacqueline Kreft. Bishop and Kreft, and then some others. Remember, when body bags were brought to the medical school's anatomy lab two days later, what was inside was, by the accounts of people there, unrecognizable, commingled flesh with no intact skull bones. But that is not what Earl Brown told the students he saw at the pit. Based on what he had heard, he saw remains come out of the pit that matched who we understood went in. And when you say came coming out, this is when U.S. troops are. So yeah, this was two weeks later after mm-hmm. they'd been burned, mm-hmm. and things were allegedly still recognizable. He saw skulls, which was not in the identification report. The first time I learned about the boys' discovery, I was a little dubious, but also intrigued. 
If this account were true, what would it mean? If the bodies had, in fact, been identifiable and recognizable all the way until November 8th when they were exhumed, how would they have come to be in such a different state two days later? Could they have been a different set of remains? The boys had some clear conclusions, and so did their principal, Brother Robert Fanovich, who was advising them on the project. It was like a bolt of lightning. A bolt of lightning. I said, uh-huh, we discovered something here, and we're hearing it from the horse's mouth. Brother Robert never spoke with Earl Brown. But his students described to him their conversations. They showed him the emails that they exchanged with Earl Brown. And after all that, Brother Robert felt strongly that the U.S. was hiding something. That something happened between the exhumation and the forensic exam. We said, did you see skulls in the grave? He says, yeah, there were skulls in the grave. That got us really angry because you realize, no, somebody removed those skulls. Because here we have... Earl Brown, who was there and he had no reason to lie. So somebody went through great pains to remove those skulls. Did not want the identity to be revealed of uh, who was in that grave. Brother Robert was not the only one convinced of a cover-up by the U.S. government. In the 23 years since the boys concluded their school project, their results have been shared widely. Their retelling of Earl Brown's account featured prominently in the Grenadian government's official investigation into all this, its Truth and Reconciliation Commission. A lot of the theories and suspicions that the U.S. intentionally hid the remains of Maurice Bishop, they are rooted in the inconsistencies that Earl Brown's account revealed. But then... Earl Brown went quiet. When he realized what we were doing and how how it was getting, he cut us off. He stopped responding to their phone calls and emails. The boys, their principal, even the Grenadian government, they could not find him again. For 23 years, the linchpin of this theory about the U.S. government having tampered with remains has come down to emails between the AOL account of an ex-Jamaican soldier and the Hotmail account of a group of teenagers. So my colleagues and I decided, well, we need to find Earl Brown. And we needed to ask him, did he stick by his story? And did he see anything else? We started our search with Earl Browns in Jamaica. There was an actor, a lawyer, a lighting technician. No, 40, 40 years ago, in 1983, I was living in London. I was living in Jamaica. I only returned to London in 93. So yeah, it's the wrong Earl Brown. I bought a copy of the Jamaica Yellow Pages off of eBay, and I spent a day cold calling all the E. Browns listed in the country. Earl? Like E-A-R-L? No. Because Jamaicans were having a hard time understanding my American accent, I tried switching up my pronunciation. Errol. Errol Brown. Errol. That did not achieve much. Um, is there an Errol Brown here? Other than me sounding like an idiot. Okay. Okay, thank you. Bye. Brother Robert told us that he thought Earl Brown might have moved to North America. So we went looking for Jamaican Earl Browns living in Florida. No, no, Earl is my pet name. In Washington, in New York. We roped other people into the search. Hi, 
Hi. Um, I'm looking for an Earl Brown. He's here. Amanda Coletta is the Post correspondent in Canada, and she spent a weekend knocking on doors in Toronto. Right name, wrong person. <laughs> okay, thanks so much. All right. Have a good day. Okay. <laughs> Bye. This is around the time when I started to get nervous that we weren't going to find the right Earl Brown. In a last-ditch effort, I enlisted my mom, Francine. So why is this guy so important based on all the other people that you've interviewed? I tried to explain to her that finding this Jamaican soldier was crucial to fully investigating the state of the remains when they were recovered by the U.S. Okay, so he is really key. Yeah. And you said his name is Jerry Brown? Earl Brown. Earl Brown. Okay, we're going to write it down. Earl Brown. Okay. Of course, my mom knew someone who had connections to the Jamaican military. He was able to ask someone to look up Earl Brown's file. But the information in it was outdated, which could mean that Earl Brown was deceased or that maybe he had changed his name. We couldn't be sure. This is the part where I have to tell you. We tried to find Earl Brown for a year and a half. But by the time we started putting together this podcast... We had to accept the facts. We had not been able to track him down. So in the absence of an interview with Earl Brown, we followed other leads. Again, he had described to the boys being at the scene of the exhumation. We had photos of that exhumation, photos that featured members of the U.S. military and also journalists who were at that same scene. So we thought, okay, if we can't find Mr. Brown, then we'll find the people in these photos who were clearly with him at Calabini, the other people who would have seen the bodies in the pit before and during the exhumation. People like Peter Lebo, a former photographer for the Associated Press. I recall that uh, that we were basically tipped off that you know that a forensics and a grave registration team was up at Calabini, which is their military training facility, and um, you know was checking out uh, you know a rumor that Morris Bishop and his, you know the cabinet members might have been burned and buried there. Peter was the person who shot all of those photos that we showed to Colin Brathwaite earlier in the series and to the bomb expert in the last episode. None of the photos that Peter took showed actual human remains. Instead, they were shots of the action around the pit. He took the image of the two U.S. soldiers carrying a body bag away from the pit. Peter doesn't remember the names of anyone he photographed at Calabini, but he still remembers a lot about that scene. I don't remember how many of us were up there at that time, but the minute you arrived and they had the, you know, the area cordoned off where they were digging for remains, uh, you know, there was the unmistakable stench of dead bodies. We asked Peter about the state of the remains that he saw. He said he remembers seeing recognizable body parts. But then we asked which body parts. I don't recall. All I do is, all I recall is, you know, it was obvious that there were body parts in that pit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get into a grave scene like that, and it's difficult to tell what's body parts and what's bodies. Did you see skulls? No. That's senior producer Ted Muldoon. You did not see skulls? No, I did not. Not that I, not that I recall. So did you see torsos or anything that kind of seemed like full portions of a body? Uh, Yes. I mean, you know, these were, like I say, this was unmistakable bodies or parts of bodies where they were working. Forty years have gone by since this moment Peter had at Calabini. 
It made sense that his memory was unclear. I've thought so much over the course of this work about memory, about what's real and what's not, what we don't end up holding on to and why. Then we talked with another journalist who was at the scene, Mark Shearer. We were able to identify him because he was in Peter's photos. We would run out to some isolated location and see a large pit and stand there and look into the pit and there was nothing there. Mark's recollection of the pit was pretty different from Peter's. Mark said that from what he remembered, the pit was empty and there were no bodies anywhere. He also said that there weren't even soldiers at the scene, that there were only journalists. See, oh, yeah, I don't have a memory. Oh, they're soldiers. Ted had pulled up the AP photos on his computer screen to show Mark. Photos that Mark was in. Oh, my gosh. Now, where am I supposed to be? So do you see yourself in it? It's like, fine. <laughs> like, where's Waldo? Where's Waldo? Uh, uh, no, I just see uh, helmets. And I wasn't wearing helmets. Well, that's me. Holy mackerel. Not only was Mark in the photos, he was standing next to U.S. soldiers, talking to them, interviewing them. It wasn't at all what he remembered. And... Now, wait, is that a body bag? Mm-hmm. I have no memory of the removal of a body bag. But is this the same place where I was? Same place, yeah. The other shots? Yeah. We also had video of the scene, raw footage shot by ABC that we were able to get a hold of. And in that footage, you can see Mark and you can hear Mark's voice putting questions to a captain with the Army. Have you been told is in here and uh, how did you find that out? Through the Caribbean Peacekeeping Force. They were loaded to it first through a civilian who was a cook here in the Cuban compound. And he saw them uh, dumping uh, Bishop's remains here and Corporal Brown here from the Jamaican Army. Uh, he escorted myself and the graduate administration NCO up here this morning. The tape from this moment at the scene is notable for a couple of reasons. First, you can hear this Army captain refer to a Corporal Brown with the Jamaican Army. We thought that that was probably our Earl Brown. So a confirmation that Earl Brown was there, he was at the scene of this exhumation, and that he was real. Then we turned our attention to the guy who was talking, the captain. We were able to figure out his name, Henry Four or Hank Four. And in this video, he's gesturing at the pit and describing what's down there. The remains are a bone in it. The only thing we have down there right now is bones because they've been down there for two weeks or so now. He says, the only thing we have down there right now is bones. Now, I was able to track down Henry Four. I found him more than a year ago. And when I first reached out over email, he seemed open to an interview. He even gave me his phone number. But then I called him, explained who I was. Hi, uh, this is Martine Powers from The Washington Post. And I thought that he'd hung up on me. Hello? Hello? I tried back, no answer. Then I got an email from him. He apologized that we got cut off and said that he was someplace with marginal cell service. Then he said, quote, Really appreciate the follow-up. After further consideration and consulting with my closest advisors, I regretfully decline to be interviewed for this project. I've tried him a few more times since then, and he asked that I stop contacting him. We also identified another member of the Army who was at that scene, Master Sergeant Michael Ortego. 
He also declined an interview, though through an intermediary. I was told that he said that due to the sensitive nature of the material, it would be, quote, highly inappropriate for him to comment. So that was two people working with Graves Registration who did not want to talk to us. But we were able to identify another person who was at the scene, a guy in Ohio named Joe Diaz. Another vet that I'd been in contact with was able to connect us. He just told me that I'd be expecting a call from from some lady um, wanted to talk about, I'm thinking, Grenada. And you were in Graves Registration, right? Yes, ma'am. Joe remembered going out to the exhumation at Caledini. And there were a lot of details about the scene that he remembered accurately. The other people who were there, even the sounds. Details that we know because of the video footage we have of the scene. I mean, there was just all kinds of people that I'm thinking, what the heck's going on here? Well, there was, we had three or four helicopters hovering above us. We got all kinds of big brass and civilian people on the side watching. But according to him, he never saw any bodies, just some bones that he didn't even think were human. I think they were like maybe a, maybe a pig or chicken bones and stuff like that. We never, I, I myself personally did not find any human remains, but, but you know, but we did find bones. Hmm. In Joe's memory, his team placed these little pieces of bone into clear plastic bags. And he was adamant that from what he saw at the scene, there were no bodies and no body bags. Then we showed him the AP photos. Here's Joe in his 20s with camo and combat boots. He even spotted his old helmet. He'd written his nickname in capital letters on the front, The Grump. I I saw my, yep, that's me right there. Wow. Yep, sure is. Huh. But as we scrolled through the photos and showed Joe the video we had, Joe realized not only was there, in fact, a body bag in these photos. See? Now, we got a we got a body bag over there to the right. Joe was one of the two guys carrying the body bag. I do not recall picking any body out of that uh, out of that pit. Yeah. Almost makes me want to be um, what do you call it? Hypnotized and and uh, recall it. Recall it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, like because I do not remember uh, taking any like physical body out of it. We might have found some some parts, but, you know, we're, uh, I am not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Joe, who had been based at Fort Bragg at the time, he had not volunteered to be a gravedigger for the Army. When he was given the assignment, he didn't even know what graves registration was. The first time he interacted with the body, he said his thought was, what did I get myself into? He saw so many things during his time with graves registration. The remains of other U.S. soldiers, people killed in combat. Those memories have haunted him in ways that he said he's only recently started to seek out help for. So the fact that he didn't remember these bodies, I wondered if he'd kind of forgotten on purpose. Yeah. Yes. Because, yeah, I wonder if it's like a coping mechanism, right? I'm sure it might be. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure it's exactly what's going on. 
I'm sorry to bring up some of these memories. Or... No, it's okay. I, I'm sure it's all part of my therapy, you know, to talk about it, to bring it up. You know, it's it's my duty. And uh, to try to recall, you know, is just mind-boggling frustrating. Uh, there, right there it is, you know. I almost feel like, wow, I'm looking out to be a liar when I don't remember this. I don't remember that, though. From all our conversations with the people who were at the scene of this exhumation, the people who were not Earl Brown, my overriding takeaway was memories are really fallible, especially after so long. And so in thinking about how Earl Brown's testimony from 23 years ago fit into the picture, I wondered if there was reason to be circumspect. He told the teenagers in Grenada that he saw Maurice Bishop's body in some recognizable state at that pit, recovered by the U.S. military. But how much could we really trust his memory? What if his recollection was just what he had wanted to see? I figured we'd never get an answer. That's until about a month ago. It was a Saturday morning, and I was actually in Miami with my mom. We'd both flown there for my aunt's birthday party. And I got a text from Ted. He said that someone he'd reached out to months ago with a connection to the Jamaican military had just gotten back to him. And she had a number for someone named Earl Brown. Unclear if he was even the right age or the right unit. I was like, yeah, you should try and call him. And then, as my mom and I were walking into a Panera... Ted called me. Hi. Martin. Oh my God, what? It's him. Oh my God, you found him. Found oh my him. God, Ted. Oh my God. We're going we're gonna <laughs> to talk to him on Monday. Oh my God. After the break, the conversation with the Earl Brown. And honestly, I still can't believe that we found him. Hi, Earl. I'm Martine. Nice to meet you. Hi. How are you? Thank you so much for doing this. We're so grateful. I try my best. <laughs> if I, to, I just, I feel like I want to give you like a little bit of a picture of the, the lengths that we went through to try to find you. Find me? <laughs> I gave Earl the whole rundown. The Jamaican phone book, cold calling every Earl Brown we could find in New York and Toronto and South Florida. A lot of Jamaicans live in Florida, South Florida. Well, that's where we were trying to find you. We were like, okay, we got to find nah. Earl Brown. I got family in Florida, but I don't like Florida. So, nah. Why don't you like Florida? Too flat. <laughs> of course, the reason that looking for him in Florida and all these other places didn't work was because they were not California, which is where Earl lives now. He actually talked to us from his car, pulled over on the side of the road, heading home from work. I started our interview by asking Earl about his earliest memories of the invasion. And he told me about how, back in October of 1983, he was a military intelligence officer in the Jamaica Defense Force. I was working in my office in Kingston, and the subject was brought up by my commanders. They decided that um, Jamaica was going to lead a Caribbean contingent of soldiers along with the United States and invade Grenada. 
Was the American military like in charge of you guys? Were you reporting up to them or you were sort of a separate? <laughs> the way I, my way of looking at the time, it was we were working together separately. <laughs> um, <laughs> my unit was basically in charge of the so-called prisoners who were picked up and uh, taking care of interrogations and stuff like that, just interviews. Mm-hmm get the information that they need to get. And um, there are a couple of guys from uh, the United States Forces who would be in our office back and forth, and I would communicate with them on many different levels. Earl's job was to look for information about October 19th and the location of Maurice Bishop's body. It was a job he took very seriously. In part because even before all this happened, he had followed the rise of the revolution and of Bishop. He was my idol. And I looked up to him then. Most people in the Caribbean at the time liked Maurice Bishop, including myself. Respected him, looked at him as a leader, a role model, you know. Mm. So it's kind of like, wow, this happened, and it happened on my birthday with him. What was your birthday? October 19th, the day he was killed. Mm. I mean, I felt bad. You know, I, I wanted to know, okay, what happened and why? From my personal perspective, but also I was doing a job which I had to remain neutral also. While he was doing that job and conducting interrogations, he came across someone who gave him an important tip. He was a member of the Grenadian Army. And during the interview, the information came about that he knew where the bodies were. Based on the video we played for you earlier and some news articles from the time of the invasion, we think the man Earl is referring to here is a guy named Christopher Bowen. He was a cook for the Grenadian Army. According to the report from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Bowen died back in 2000. This guy stood out because he seemed to have very credible information that were like, oh, okay, cool, because some guys you spoke to, you knew that they were, they knew stuff, but they were holding back. But... He just wanted to come clean, so he he just started talking. So, you know, we tried to get as much information out of him as possible as to, okay, who did he think was there and um, does he know the location and can he get us there, which he did. Earl told the Americans about this. They assembled a team to go up to the location, including, as Earl remembers, grave diggers from the American military. There were some um, grave diggers. I think, if I remember serving correct, they were from Fort Bragg. And they came with us to the location. And um, there it was. We saw the hole in the ground. It wasn't a grave, so to speak, where it's like a mound of dirt on top of it or anything like that. It was just like an open pit. And there was some dirt inside of it and some rubbish, trash, so to speak, that was partially burned. Earl didn't get inside the pit himself, but he observed what the graves registration team was doing. He said his job was to document what they recovered from the pit. After we started sifting through the burnt stuff on top and um, going through the dirt, uh, we saw pieces of clothing. And we kind of like pulled through that and then we saw body parts intact, so to speak. Well, yeah. Yeah, I I know this is really difficult to talk about um and excuse my you know desire for details but but when you say like intact or body parts like what ex- what exactly were you seeing i mean were they whole bodies were they 
parts of bodies. Yeah, there were whole bodies. There were there were whole bodies. They were like lying on top of each other by the hole. And from what you saw, I'm I just have to ask, like, did did they have heads? Yes. Remember, the remains that ended up at the anatomy lab two days after the exhumation, they were described as destroyed, commingled remains, and there were no intact skulls. But as you just heard, Earl remembers seeing intact, discrete bodies with heads. Do you remember seeing hands? Yes. And feet. And feet. This is something we didn't get into before, but you should know that in addition to there being no intact skulls among the remains that arrived at the anatomy lab, there were also very few bones from hands or feet. But here, Earl is saying that he saw those things. How many bodies? Five. You know it's five for sure? Five bodies, one female, four males. How did you know? How do I know? (laughs) How do I know? (laughs) Because clothes that they were wearing, <clears throat> and we had actually um, talked about what were they wearing at the time. So we, we know the motor dress that they were in, and who was wearing what. And also, it was one of the grave digging team members pointed out because they started pulling. They're like, "Oh, this is the female right here," hmm. you know. And you could see male genitalia, so you knew what was male and what was female. Hmm. It, 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 it was right there. After spending more than a year trying to find Earl Brown, I had started to have doubts and to question whether he would say the same things to us that he told the boys. What the boys said he saw was so different from what others we talked to had seen later. What if they just misunderstood him? But the descriptions he gave us, they were consistent with what he told the schoolboys all those years ago. He also described to us how the exhumation was carried out. He said the witness they'd interviewed confirmed who each body belonged to. And Earl said that he also had information about what those executed at the fort were wearing that day, so he could make comparisons. And then were you able to recognize or identify anyone who was in that pit? Uh, Facially, no. But um, these are not people who I knew personally. So at that time, did you think it was Maurice Bishop? Yes. Yes, we all did, yes. Then I asked him about the bodies of the other people. Can you name who was identified to you in that pit? White man, Bishop, and Crest. Those are the names that I remember distinctly. Whiteman here is Unison Whiteman. Again, that was the Minister of Foreign Affairs who was executed. Earl said he couldn't recall the names of the other two people who he said had been identified at the pit. But we know that Bishop was killed with seven other people, that that it was eight people in total who were executed, you know, in in front of the wall at the fort. But you're saying that this is five bodies. There were five people inside of that hole. Five bodies. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We took them out. Five bodies. Not eight, not nine, not seven. Five bodies that was inside the hole. This stopped me, because the discrepancy between the eight people we know were executed and the five bodies that Earl described seeing, we don't have an explanation for that. 
Earl said that the Grenadian soldier who gave him the tip even said that there would be five. So this is different from what we heard from the Grenada 17, that all eight bodies had been brought to Calavini. Five is consistent, though, with the U.S. forensic report. As a reminder, it says the remains brought to the lab, quote, represent bodies of at least five people. And then there's one other account that kind of matches up with what Earl Brown is saying. This is from a couple of Associated Press stories that published on November 9th, 1983. They talk about the discovery of bodies at Calavini, and they quote Henry Four, again, the captain that we mentioned earlier, who turned down our request for an interview. According to these articles, Henry told reporters that he was, quote-unquote, relatively sure that one of the bodies belonged to Maurice Bishop and that one belonged to a woman. Though those stories suggested that there were only three to four people found at the pit and not five. Did you take a look around the rest of that area to see if there were any other, like, similar bodies. pits or bo- places that, with bodies or anything like that? Yes, yes, we did. Did he find anything? No. Earl said that when the remains were removed from the pit and put in body bags, they were also tagged. For the record, we've never heard of any tags or identification arriving with the remains that were brought to the anatomy lab. And then what happened then after they were tagged? They were placed on a helicopter and shipped out to um, one of the ships that were offshore. To a ship? They were sent to a ship that was waiting offshore, and we were told that they were going to be sent to the United States to do further um, DNA on it, forensics. Earl was the only person to ever tell us the bodies might have been taken to a Navy ship. According to the government's forensic report, they said that the bodies recovered at Calabini were taken to, quote, a temporary morgue facility without refrigeration. Our understanding was that they stayed there for two days in the care of the graves registration team before they were taken to the medical school for examination. But there was never any indication of where that temporary morgue facility might be. We know that bodies of Cuban soldiers killed in combat were taken to a temporary U.S. Army camp at the Point Salines Airport. But we had never heard about bodies being taken to a ship. Who who told you that they were going to be... One of the commanders, one of the American commanders. What? So, okay. That was the last of it that I heard. And so how do you know that they were taken to a ship? And like, what kind of ship? Because the commander at the time was working with, he told me that that's what the process was going to be. Okay. And did you like see it go to the ship? I mean, did you, was the ship like close by? Did you, could you see the ship? Sorry. Sorry, go on the helicopter. <laughs> we, we were, I couldn't see a ship to see that it's going to go to that particular ship, but it was loaded onto helicopters. Wow. And um, and when they were loaded onto the helicopter, how many body bags was it? I mean, was it one person per body bag? Five. 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 It's worth noting here that both the forensic report and Dr. Jordan said that only four body bags arrived at the anatomy lab. Not the five that Earl is remembering seeing loaded onto a helicopter, but just four, containing the remains of at least five people. So this is another discrepancy that, so far, we can't explain. After that day at the pit, Earl never heard anything more about Maurice Bishop's body. Not until years later, 
when he happened to strike up a conversation with a journalist. For the record, he doesn't remember who this person was either. But what this journalist told him was that people still don't know where Maurice Bishop's body ended up. Donald said, what do you mean they don't know? Maurice Bishop's body was recovered. He said, well, the Greenland people don't have his body. And I'm like, what? Because I know what I did. I know what I saw. I know it got recovered. Hmm. So I'm like, I thought the Americans handed it over to the Grenadian people. And I was like, no, it was never handed over. Hmm. And then he went on to say there's been a big dispute about the Americans saying, no, they never got his body. And I'm like, uh, really? That seemed odd. And how did you feel after that conversation? I mean, you have this guy saying, oh, yeah, they never found the body of Maurice Bishop. And you having had your experience, I mean, what did you make of that afterward? I felt weird in the sense that I felt like, okay, all the things that I did that I thought I was doing a good job, and then the people were told otherwise. So it's like everything I did was in vain. What what do you mean by it was in vain? Because what was the point if I do this job to give someone closure, and then you turn around and you don't give that to them? What are you hiding? What are you denying them? So what I did was it for not, you know? I mean, why did I even do it then? I asked Earl what he thought happened to the bodies. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's like somebody's hiding something. I know what I did then, you know, and I think the Greenland people need to know. Mm-hmm. But somehow it seemed like someone's not telling the truth. And I know it's not me. There got to be somebody else because I know I was there. We tracked down Earl's commanding officer in the Jamaica Defense Force. He's retired now and still lives in Jamaica. And he asked that we not include his name or his voice in the podcast. But what he told us was that while he never saw the bodies himself, he did receive reports back from Earl at the time about finding five bodies, including one that was Maurice Bishop. And what Earl was telling us now was consistent with what he remembered hearing from Earl at the time. He told us that he thought we could trust Earl's memory. We also tried to track down any physical material that could corroborate Earl's account. Earl told us he took notes, and he also took photos of what was inside the pit. In the Associated Press images, we were able to identify Earl at the scene. You can see a camera hanging around his neck. He said that he went through several rolls of film. Unfortunately for us, he doesn't have them anymore. They weren't my personal notes to keep. So when I left the military, everything stayed with them. Because, you know, it's not for me to take um, military property. It it was military property, so to speak. It wasn't for me to take home with me. So I, I, I didn't do that. Even the negatives for pictures that I took during that entire operation... Everything was handed over to the military. I never kept any for myself. We have filed a request with the Jamaica Defense Force for copies of these photographs and his notes. We've been told by their media affairs department that, quote, the request was sent to higher authorities for approval. We also know that the policy of the U.S. Graves Registration Service was to document extensively the recovery of remains. Joe Diaz, who you heard from earlier on, he remembers filling out a form that asked him whose remains he thought he'd found at Calavini. We have filed freedom of information requests for that documentation with various agencies. And essentially, they've all told us that they don't have responsive records. 
several times during our interview, Earl said that he wished he'd had his old notes to refer to because they could have helped fill in some of the gaps in his memory. And there were a few things that Earl did not remember. He couldn't recall the clothes that were on the bodies that he saw. There were a lot of names that he didn't remember. And he thought that this exhumation happened within the first few days of his arrival in Grenada, when in fact we know from all the news coverage that it happened about two weeks after the invasion. We told Earl about the accounts that we'd heard from those journalists we interviewed. He said he remembers journalists showing up to the scene, but he didn't engage with them. To be honest, once the media started swooping down, I began to walk away a little bit to hide my face, so to speak, because we were told that it was supposed to be top secret, that um, nobody else knew what we were on except us. So it was kind of shocking when the media helicopter started hovering over it. One other thing I wanted to ask Earl about was what he remembered about the boys from Presentation Brothers College. I pulled up the report that came out of the Boys Project, and in it, they included a copy of an email that Earl sent them in January of 2000. Can I just read you some parts of it? Just because I honestly, I I feel like you might just find it interesting to hear your words from um, 23 years ago. Mm -hmm. So this is from... um, it's from one son Irie at AOL.com. Yeah, that used to be me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, so it, it starts, Dear Young Leaders, because this is what their project was called. Sorry I took so long to respond to you. As I read back to him what he'd written then. His account of seeing five bodies, seeing skulls, identifying Maurice Bishop and Jacqueline Kreft. Hope I could be of some assistance, Earl Brown. So I don't know. What do you think hearing that? Uh, makes me want to cry. <laughs> hmm. Why do you say that? Because, um, again, you know, I know what I saw. I know what was, um, what was put in the, the body bags. And it seemed like somewhere along the way, there are people who are trying to say that wasn't so. And, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of sad. It's kind of, I, well, I don't even know what words to put to this because I know, I know what I saw. So yeah, it hurts, but um, life goes on. But I honestly truly wish that um, the, the people of Grenada would and should know the truth. You know, and just just get it get it right. You know, that's that's all I say. Just get it right. Earl told us that back in 2000, he had stopped responding to the students because he was just trying to make a living after leaving the military, and he wanted to close this chapter of his life. But he was willing to speak with us now because he thought it could help. I just hope that the Grenadian people get the closure that they need. Earl Brown's account raises a lot of questions. And to us, the most important one is whether remains that seem to be intact and identifiable could change so dramatically in just a matter of days. 
We raise this with Thomas Holland. He's the forensic anthropologist who reviewed the government forensic report for us back in episode four. Burned remains are very friable. They're very fragile. They'll fall apart. They, you see this when you respond to arson cases and so on. You'll see uh, what looks like a relatively intact body, and then you go to move it, and it begins to fall apart. I mean, think about like a fireplace log. You know, a fireplace log will burn, and, and it, uh, it will turn black and gray, and it looks pretty good, and you go to poke it with the poker, and then all of a sudden it just completely falls into, you know, the 100 pieces. Human bodies are very similar to that. And so depending on given additional couple of days for decomposition and then you load them in a body bag and then they get thrown into a truck or loaded uh, roughly into a you know the back of a truck and then jostled around and then moved uh, two or three places before they finally get unzipped and removed from the body bag. And they can change remarkably in, in terms of, of how they look. But this sort of change would require them to have been extremely burnt. When we told Thomas that there were clothes found in the pit and that Earl Brown told us he'd seen hands and genitalia, Thomas said that that was harder to explain. Yeah, well, of course, now we got two scenarios that are going in opposite directions. If the hands and feet and genitalia are present, then they weren't burned that heavily because the first things that, that go in a fire generally are the hands, feet, and genitalia. So if they're not burned to the point where you've still got hands, feet, and genitalia, then it's hard to reconcile them falling apart from being burned. It's one or the other. And so I don't know how you could uh, necessarily reconcile some of the damage that you described, the long bones not being intact and the skulls not being intact and so on. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You got two scenarios there that are hard to reconcile. At this point, we just don't have enough information to fully reconcile anything. If Earl Brown is recalling the scene exactly right, and if the people describing the state of the remains in the forensic exam were exactly right, then it is hard to square those two scenarios, unless something happened in between, intentional or even unintentional. I think people don't realize the range and complexity of, of recoveries. You see something, you say, well, that's a, that's a body, but, uh, you know, how intact is it? And, you know, I've seen recoveries from battlefields where you have graves registration go in within days and recover remains from the battlefield. By the time they get back to the morgue, you've got commingling. You've got maybe 10 men missing. By the time you get back to the lab, you've got 11 body bags because additional portions got put into one bag and uh, they thought it was a separate body. Or, or you end up with nine and you end up having to go back out because somewhere you missed one. It's just That's just the nature of, of recoveries in the field. There are also all these other questions that could have affected this whole timeline. What actually was the extent of the burning? Were some of the bodies more burned than others? Were some or all of these bodies hit during the bombing of Calavini? Did the graves registration crew miss some parts of bodies as they were collecting them from the pit? Were all of the remains in the lab the same as those taken from the pit? Could something have been lost during their transport, or could the remains have been tampered with in some other way? (laughs) 
throughout this investigation, we've been trying to nail down who saw what, when. And there are other accounts that we are aware of that might square with Earl Brown's story. Again, they raise questions about what happened while the remains were in U.S. custody. But anyway, I sat down with the generals and the admirals, and we all agreed that hostilities could end as of midnight on, say, November the 3rd. Mm-hmm. Uh, we told that to Washington, and they said, yes, that's fine, we agree. And so we were able to do that. Well, November- what you're hearing is the voice of Charles Gillespie Jr., also known as Tony Gillespie. He was a diplomat in the U.S. State Department in the 1980s. Right after the U.S. invasion of Grenada, he was sent to the island to serve as a temporary ambassador for a few months and to get things back on track. Gillespie died in 2008. But in the mid-90s, he gave a series of interviews about his career. These were with an organization called the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. These interviews, which you can also find in the Library of Congress, they were extensive. The rough transcript is almost 600 pages long. We've also got a copy of the audio, which you're about to hear more of. Gillespie speaks at length about his experience in Grenada. But there are two moments in the transcripts that people in Grenada have flagged over the years. So to set this first moment up, there's this part where Gillespie talks about some members of Congress who came to Grenada shortly after the invasion to better understand what happened. There were Republicans and also Democrats who he knew were very skeptical of the invasion. And these are the first-line sort of foreign policy, tough guy, smart-as-whip Democratic Mm -hmm. members of the House of Representatives. And Gillespie describes taking this group on a tour of the island. And we start our major show-and-tell. For these guys, and they do their inquiries, and we're moving them around. Remember, Marines have been killed in helicopters mm-hmm. here, and this was the headquarters, and this is the hospital that was attacked, and this is where these incidents happened, and this was all mm-hmm. shot up, and this is Bishop where Bishop's body is, and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Did you hear that? This is where Bishop's body is. That is what gets people's attention, because... The State Department has always maintained that they didn't find Bishop's body. So why does this ambassador recall saying to this congressional delegation that this is where Bishop's body is? And it happens again in the next tape. Gillespie starts describing a forensic exam that he went to. The things we didn't get into were some of the little details. Maybe, I don't know if you want to get into them. Well, well, let's just put them in. Yeah, the forensic stuff on Bishop's body and Uh actually having to go out with a team from the, what is it, the Armed Forces College of Pathology Uh, uh, or whatever. Institute of Pathology. Institute of Pathology. Those guys, they were just remarkable going over these remains, and they wanted me. They said it's really important for you to see what we're doing and understand it Uh so you can explain it. (laughs) <laughs> and, and some of the stuff you're called upon to do as an FSO, it just yeah. seems to me, is always remarkable. FSO meaning Foreign Service Officer. But again, the phrasing here, quote, the forensic stuff on Bishop's body. Our understanding of that exam from Dr. Jordan and from the report is that what they were dealing with were bags of commingled rotting flesh that no longer bore resemblance to an intact human body. So the way Gillespie says it, referring to, quote, Bishop's body, it sounds strange. And if you're taking him at his word, it kind of sounds like he's describing something closer to what Earl Brown says he saw than what the forensic experts wrote that they saw in that exam. 
Of course, he could be just misspeaking in both of these instances. He could just be using Bishop's body as a shorthand for the remains that we thought at the time might have been Bishop's body. We tracked down Gillespie's deputy at the time to ask him about all of this. He said that he remembers that Gillespie was present at a forensic exam, but he said he had no memory that Bishop's body was ever found. I should also say that the congressional delegation that Gillespie mentioned, it concluded two days before the bodies were removed from the pit. So if what Gillespie was recalling is correct, then that means the State Department was aware of the existence of the bodies two days before the exhumation. That timing is also supported by something else we found deep in the archives of the Center for Military History in D.C., a State Department report dated November 6th. It states, quote, a gravesite which contains an unconfirmed number of bodies has been located. It is suspected that this site may contain the bodies of Bishop, his cabinet members, and other civilians. Then it goes on to say, quote, the governor general has requested our assistance in the identification of the remains. Grenada's governor general at the time was Sir Paul Schoon. He died 10 years ago, but oh man, if I could ask him questions. The governor general serves as the representative of the queen on the island. And after the invasion, Paul Schoon became the acting head of the Grenadian government. He wrote a memoir in the early 2000s. And in it, he talks about the remains that were recovered from Calavini. He writes in the epilogue, quote, When the Americans were led to a grave in Calavini, they found some burnt bones, which I was officially notified could not be positively identified. This was the end of that saga. But, and this is a big but. From our conversation with him, he suggested that the bodies, the Americans dumped the bodies at sea. That is Claudette Joseph. She is the current Attorney General of Grenada. And back in 2002, as a young lawyer, she worked on Grenada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. She was in the room for an interview with Schoon at his home when he apparently said this. Dump them at sea. Mm-hmm. After they picked them up from Calavini? Yeah, after they were retrieved. Yeah. How did he know that? Well, I guess as the governor general, and remember we didn't have an elected government, he assumed executive authority at the time. So he was the person, there, the figure of authority in Grenada at the time. There was no one else. And when we interviewed him, this is what... He indicated that the bodies were deposited at sea. Schoon was a proven ally to the U.S. government. In fact, Ambassador Gillespie in those tapes talks a lot about Schoon. He met frequently with the U.S. military and the ambassador. So Schoon would have been in a position to know things. I didn't see um, uh, like a a transcript or an account of... um, that interview with Schoon in the TRC report. You wouldn't see one. Why not? Um, I think it was, you know, his his wish. He respected the commissioners, and um, he acceded to their request to interview him. But there was very little of what he said to them that he 
he wanted published. We tried to run down other officials who were present for that interview or documents that would prove he said this, but we couldn't corroborate this from another source. We have put all of this to the Defense Department and the State Department. We asked them specific questions. Why is there an account that the Governor General said that the U.S. put bodies in the ocean? What was Ambassador Gillespie talking about when he said he saw Bishop's body? What about this former Jamaican intelligence officer saying that he saw Bishop's identifiable body and that an American commander told him that it was being taken to a U.S. ship? Both the State Department and the Pentagon didn't provide any further comments or answers beyond the statements that they'd given us previously. State said, quote, We have no knowledge of or information about the remains of Prime Minister Bishop. The Defense Department said that they were not able to find any records or documents that could confirm any of this. So what we're left with is a chain of custody. Remains that were recovered by Americans and held by Americans. Whether something happened to some or all of them, as Sir Paul Schoon apparently said, we obviously have no idea at this point. But we do know that two days later, remains were examined by Americans in the lab at the medical school. And we think we know where those remains ended up next. He was called by the U.S. people, come take these pouches and bury them somewhere right, in the cemetery. That's next time on The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. Episode 7 of this series will be out in two weeks, on Wednesday, December 6th. But if you want to listen two days early on Apple Podcasts, become a subscriber to The Washington Post. Learn more at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. If you want to see photos of Earl Brown from 1983 and now, and if you want to read his original email to the students, check out our episode guide at WashingtonPost.com slash Empty Grave. You can also see a copy of that State Department report that I mentioned. It is very interesting. The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop was reported and produced by me, Martine Powers, along with Ted Muldoon and Renny Svarnovsky. Additional reporting from Amanda Coletta and Razan Niklaoui. Our editors are Sarah Childress and Renita Jablonski. Fact-checking by Amelia Schonbeck. Mix-editing by Theo Balcom. Our series theme and music is by Keshav Chandradath Singh. Mixing, sound design, and additional music by Ted Muldoon. Our show art was designed by Lucy Nayland. FOIA guidance from Nate Jones. Publishing support from Allison Michaels. And project editing by Casey Shaper. We told you all about our efforts to find Earl Brown, and I just want to thank some of the people who helped us in that search. My mom, Francine Powers, Kirk Davis, all the Jamaicans of the Washington Post who asked their family members about Earl Brown, and a very special thank you to Corporal Irene Thomas, who really and truly came through for us. The audio you heard of Ambassador Tony Gillespie comes from the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. And footage from that scene at the Calavini Pit came from ABC. We have really appreciated the emails and feedback we've received on previous episodes. If you want to share your thoughts, please reach out at emptygrave at washpost.com. And help us spread the word about this podcast. If you've got friends, family, coworkers who you think would connect to the story, send them a link, or better yet, 
take their phone, open up their podcast app, and hit follow. Thank you so much for listening to The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. And we will see you in two weeks for our final episode, Episode 7.